0: This time, the Royal British Legion's General Election Manifesto, but are the politicians listening? One for all and all for one for brain-dead NATO at that jaw-dropping meeting. And why is NATO still obsessed with the threat from Russia, but forgetting all about Libya? I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP. Do politicians really understand what it's like to be a member of the armed forces in 2019? The Royal British Legion aren't convinced, so they've written their own general election manifesto to highlight the needs of those who serve or used to. It has five key recommendations. It wants the next government to implement well Matthew Seward is Assistant Director of Public Affairs and Public Policy at the Legion and he joins me now hello Matthew and Christopher Lee is our defence analyst and joins me in the studio so why did you do it Matthew
1: well we want the uh, next government and parliament to ensure that the needs of serving personnel their families and veterans remain high on the agenda and so that's why we've come out with our manifesto for what are, are our top priorities for the next few years so what's in it so there are five key things. The first thing we're looking at is uh, concerns those personnel who are recruited from overseas, particularly the Commonwealth. Um, the recruitment from those has been increasing in recent years. Yet, when well, those who've served four years want to stay in this country that they've served after leaving if they want to do so. They're faced with a big bill for visa fees of over £2,000 per person and the same for each member of their family. We want to see those visa fees scrapped. Um, The second one we're looking at is the future of the Veteran Medical Funds. Now, these are special funds that were paid out of the LIBOR fines that were on the banks, Mm -hmm. uh, and they have provided, over the last five years, two and a half thousand veterans have received life-changing support through them to help with hearing loss and serious physical injury. But that money's running out next year, and these funds are already oversubscribed, so we want to see those funds secured for the future. Uh, We also are looking for a question in the next national census in 2021 on membership of the armed forces community because we don't actually know for sure how many veterans there are in this country or where they are amazingly and so the census we think is the way we can find that out. Uh, The next thing we're looking at is about making sure that the military compensation that injured veterans and widows get um, isn't negatively affected by the complex rules around benefits which might mean that when there's a means test they might lose some of their compensation and finally we're looking at investing in research on what works in treating those veterans who've got Gulf War illnesses from the the first Gulf War nearly 30 years ago now.
0: So how did you come to that shortlist? Because some of your your demands are very specific, but there are so many issues facing serving and uh, members of the armed forces and veterans like housing, like pursuit of historical allegations. How have you narrowed it down? Is it because it's the kind of brief that you have at the Royal British Legion or is it from your research generally asking everybody who's concerned?
1: It's a bit of both of those. There are a lot of issues the Legion cares about. These are the ones we've selected for the manifesto. Obviously, with this election, we didn't have a lot of notice. And so we kind of had to pull something together quite quickly. But these are the ones that we've been thinking about for a while. You're right, they reflect what we're hearing from uh, the armed forces community itself, from our own welfare teams, from our own research. And so we think it helps by being quite specific about what we want, because then it really focuses the mind as well.
0: Mm. And why do you feel the need to spell it out for the politicians? Are the governments and chiefs of staff not interested in what you have to say?
1: Well, I think we all have a responsibility to ensure that the unique contribution of the armed forces community is given the recognition it deserves. We've done this in recent general elections. Each t- of the last few general elections, we've published what our priorities. In fact, the first time the Legion ever issued a series of recommendations was for the 1922 general
0: elections. So, <laughs> wow!
1: So it's something we always—it's always been a part of what we do as an organisation in terms of making representations on behalf of those who we support.
0: Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, has been listening to you, Christopher. What's your take?
2: Do you know, i was thinking with you. I mean, one of the first things you've really got to do is to make sure that whoever's in government keeps a minister for veterans because if they slide that away from the brief of uh, a a defence minister um, because it's cheaper, the costs, etc., or the interest, that's bad. The second part of it is that really... You have been doing this, as you say, let's talk about from 1922, the interest. Everybody understands it. There isn't a newspaper, there isn't a broadcasting organisation that doesn't run a story on veterans and also sometimes the the lousy deal that the military get. Ministers and chiefs of staff, by and large, do very little about this. They're not that interested in in in, in, in the services as people until they're trying to recruit them and the main interest, of course, is the is defence budgets. Matthew, do you agree with that?
1: I think on the issue of a uh, veterans minister, I mean, the, the Legion first called for a veterans minister, I think back in the 1980s or 1990s. So we've always been glad that there has been a particular focus. I think ultimately, these things are about political will and priority. And we think by speaking out on these things, that helps to maintain the issues higher on the agenda.
0: And in the history since 1922 of publishing your manifestos, how often have you actually got results?
1: Well, um, we've been reasonably successful as an organisation. Over the years, we've, a lot of the campaigns that we've run to uh, get change have seen fruition. The Armed Forces Covenant itself was a uh, the result of something that the Legion really stuck its neck out and campaigned to get that in legislation in the first place. The, um, so we've we've had, had a reasonable track record and achieved some some important uh, gains, I think, for the community. But uh, we can't do that alone. And we work obviously closely with other service charities and with our, our supporters as well.
0: Good to speak to you. Matthew Seward from the Royal British Legion. Thank you for your time today.
3: SIPREP with k
0: Still to come, 70 years of NATO. Some say the alliance is still obsessed with Russia. Is it? PFBS this week, the leaders of the 29 NATO countries met in London to celebrate 70 years of the
4: alliance. NATO remains the only platform where North America and Europe discuss, decide and take actions together every day. At the heart of
2: it is a pledge that we will come to one another's defence, all for one,
1: one for all. I'm sorry to say that we don't have the same definition of terrorism on the table.
4: Every different leader has teams who every now and then uh, have uh, their jaws drop at uh, unscheduled surprises like uh, that video itself, for example.
1: Well,
2: he's two faced. And honestly, with Trudeau, he's a nice guy. I I find him to be a very nice guy. But, you know, the truth is that I called him out on the fact that he's not paying two percent and I guess he's not very happy about it.
0: That was in order. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg, followed by Boris Johnson, Emmanuel Macron, Justin Trudeau and Donald Trump. Well, let's talk to Michael Evans, former Defence and Pentagon correspondent for The Times. Hello, Michael. And the last thing we heard there was about this big spat between the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, and the US President, Donald Trump, over Justin Trudeau filmed apparently mocking Donald Trump at Buckingham Palace at that reception. Not a great way, really, to go on at the event, was it?
4: Uh, No, no, The person I feel sorriest for is Mr. Stoltenberg, who I know as the NATO Secretary General has been trying desperately to create or develop a a summit that will be crisis-free and division-free and and, and sort of make everyone walk on eggshells, Hmm. uh, as far as Trump's concerned. Um, And uh, it just didn't work. I mean, I think it's, you know, to be honest, it's been a little bit blown up. I think obviously, they should. You should never, you know, whisper into a microphone. When when there's a microphone around, you should never sort of gossip. But there we are. It's a lesson learned, and, and of course, Mr. Trump's had a set too with uh, Justin Trudeau before in the. Uh, 2018 G7 summit, which took place in, in Canada. So, I, um, yeah, it's very unfortunate when, uh, you know, spe- especially when they're supposed to be celebrating the 70th anniversary and everyone should have been walking around with smiles on their faces.
0: And what's your assessment of this, uh, this NATO leaders' meeting? Not a summit, of course, but a leaders' meeting.
4: Yeah, fair enough. It wasn't a summit, there was nothing decided. Um, but, you know, if ever you needed to demonstrate uh, unity, uh, this was the occasion. NATO's had its troubles over the years, and in more recent uh, time, there there are some serious things to worry uh, about—cracks and fissures and divisions, etc. But it's uh, pretty remarkable. I still think that you know, 29 members and 29 member nations are are still uh, uh, part of this uh, unique alliance, and uh, it still stands today. And there are still people around. I think Boris Johnson mentioned it. That it, you know, it is an absolute key alliance and everyone's got to stick together despite all the cracks and fissures which I don't think are necessarily surprising but mm. uh, I, I think on the whole it, uh, it went uh, averagely well but I'm afraid Mr Trump went back uh, looking in rather a bad mood.
0: Averagely well Christopher and of course there was that concern wasn't there just before the meeting that Turkey would uh, kibosh the whole idea of reinforcing NATO's presence in the, in the Baltic area but that didn't happen so actually not, not too bad after all.
2: NATO meetings are, n- are never anything more than not too bad. <laughs> uh, the other thing to remember, of course, is that uh, President Trump does not forget. Um, and so I imagine that uh, uh, the uh, I imagine there'd be Justin Trudeau looking every morning at, uh, at the, the presidential tweet. But that doesn't really actually matter. I mean, this didn't actually matter. But what, what is more important in all the debates about about NATO and the the obvious charge that NATO is still important and it is if you measure it against all the other organisations NATO is part of the although it's not part of the United Nations it is in that list of things that include the United Nations are trying to do something about not necessarily world peace but trying to to be guarantors of of some sort of peace uh, but there is one thing that's missing from NATO and it makes it I think weak it has no big idea um, and it, it's but easy when to you sort say, of say.
0: When you say it has, sorry to interrupt, it has no big idea, uh, n- you know, you have Jens Stoltenberg talking about the problems with China going forward, the trade uh, problems, and also talking about space, but are they not big ideas?
2: Uh, no, they're issues. I mean, if you go back, I, mean, I suppose if you go back to April 1949 when the whole thing began, you've got issues like that. Uh, running right along almost every single year for, for NATO to, to resolve. I mean, there, there are times during the Cold War, for example, there was always something to be resolved almost by, uh, week by, by, by week by week. The point I'm making is that there is a need for a big idea that NATO has to exist in a different form. I would throw in the idea. It's not a proposal, obviously, for anybody, but a big idea, for example, does America... Have a place in modern NATO, and I think there are probably more arguments against the idea of of, of America being in NATO than ever before. Um, and the Americans would. Sort of
0: How about that, Michael Evans, for a big idea?
4: Uh, oh dear, uh, that <laughs> that makes me feel very nervous indeed. I mean, I mean, I think unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, um, for the for NATO as an alliance to survive, it has to have uh, America as the as the leadership nation. I, I mean, I don't think. That, I don't think that uh, I don't think it would really survive without without America. Does it need to survive? Uh, well, yes, it does. And uh, and America's part is, I think, in my view, is, is crucial. I, I think I agree with with Christopher in some senses that, you know, NATO always needs a big idea, but they've sort of got a big idea, which is to survive and 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 to keep at bay very uh, potential enemy, which they uh, started worrying about in 1949. And Russia is, you know, is still potentially uh, someone they have to worry yeah. about. And I think that gives them, you may call it an issue or an idea. In- I still think it's something which keeps the, their raison d'etre. In
0: so. fact, we're coming on to that very subject right now. Stay with us, gentlemen. Zip Rep. Well, NATO was born 70 years ago in response to the threat posed by Stalin and the Soviet Union. Today, the Soviet Union no longer exists, but the alliance still believes there is a threat from the east, from Putin's Russia. Well, Mary Dijewski is a commentator on Russian affairs and writes for the Independent. And Mary, some might say in the Soviet era, era that NATO has a calculated obsession with Russia as the enemy. Is that still the case?
3: Well, I I mean, I fear um, that for quite a lot of people involved with NATO and in what you might call the defence establishment, that seems to me to be very much true. Um, And I think it's really unfortunate because it leaves aside the fact that there were these gigantic changes between 1989, um, we've just seen the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and 1991, when the Soviet Union, which was the great enemy then, um, and the reason for NATO's existence, when that empire collapsed. Um, So I think there should be a real question about whether 30 years on, um, Russia post-Soviet Russia should be seen as the centre for NATO's purpose.
0: How do you think NATO should regard Russia?
3: Well, I think there's really two stages here. Um, I'm not alone. There's quite a body of um, diplomatic and academic opinion um, around the world, um, including in the United States, that thinks it was actually a mistake for NATO to continue its existence after the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact. Um, I think that if NATO had similarly been dissolved or if it had rethought itself um, and maybe brought about some pan-European security system, um, the world today would look quite different. And I think both Russia and Eastern and Central Europe and um, Western Europe um, could be feeling much more secure than they do today. And yet, NATO, um, so, Na-
0: and sorry to interrupt, And yet, yet NATO still exists. Vladimir Putin is supposed to be on his last stretch as Russian president, but NATO brief is fond of saying he will not give up and stay on till after uh, 2024. Is this um, true or just a convenient way of keeping the threat alive for NATO? <laughs>
3: Well, I think it, it is partly um, a convenient way of keeping the threat alive, um, but of course one of the things that happened in the past five years is that NATO hasn't just um, remained in existence, it's expanded um, right up to um, parts of the Russian border, and that's hugely resented by Russia and is seen as a great source of insecurity. Um, so, you know, the idea that um, NATO is actually a force for stability and security isn't, um, isn't universally accepted. And you could see that its expansion has been um, an additional source of um, instability. But I think it's quite interesting that, I mean, in recent months, we've heard people, including President Macron of France, Um, talking about how maybe NATO needs to reorient itself um, towards different threats or towards a world where Russia is maybe just one and maybe not the main threat. And of course, during um, President Trump's election campaign, um, he got into dreadful trouble in Europe by talking about um, NATO as obsolete Um, But he didn't mean obsolete in the sense of needing to be pushed completely out of um, existence. He said that it needed to adapt its priorities. Um, And I don't think he was completely wrong about that.
0: Uh, Mary, I know you believe that NATO has outlived its purpose. If not NATO, then what?
3: Well, I think there's a... Um, there's a very good argument for having um, a separate European security system. Um, I think that's been true since the end of the Cold War, and I think it's particularly true now. Of course, this depends in part whether the America First sort of isolationist policy of the United States whether whether it's limited to Donald Trump or whether it's actually a sign of the times in the United States and this is going to continue for a lot longer.
0: Mary Dejewski, thank you very much for joining us. That was Mary Dejewski from a busy Chatham House. Now one area of NATO briefing missing from the leaders' meeting was Libya. The French and then the British and then for a moment Obama's America started the protest that would lead to the toppling of Colonel Muammar Gaddafi's regime and eventually his killing military chaos continues in the country seven years on and nato has never backed up the government well mary fitzgerald is a commentator and writer on libya and mary thank you for joining us today you're recently back from libya where'd you go and what would you see
5: well, I spent uh, a week in, uh, in Tripoli and sometime also in, in Misrata, um, a town a few hours drive from, from Tripoli, uh, where basically the armed groups of Misrata are key to the battle that is currently raging on the outskirts of Tripoli. It's now eight months um, since Khalifa Haftar, a military commander based in eastern Libya, launched an offensive to capture Tripoli, the seat of the UN-backed and recognized government. Uh, That was an offensive, he believed, and many of his supporters inside and indeed outside Libya um, believed would be over very, very quickly. And that has proven not to be the case. What I witnessed in in Tripoli was basically a a stalemate, a grinding stalemate. Um, Nevertheless, uh, this is a war that is being fought mostly from the skies. Um, uh, the UN special envoy to Libya, Rasan Salame, recently uh, called this the biggest uh, drone war in the world uh, currently. According to the UN, um, the Haftar camp has um, uh, more than 800 drone strikes have taken place on behalf of Haftar's camp and about 250 on the part of the UN-backed government. So this has become a war that many of the Libyans I spoke to in in Tripoli basically said it's a war beyond our hands. This is a war that is just as foreign as it is Libyan. Well,
0: NATO's uh, 2011 operation in Libya was out of area, but the situation there has not improved then, Mary?
5: No, uh, over the last uh, eight years, since the overthrow of of Gaddafi, Libya has lurched from one crisis to another, uh, with a a second civil war sparked in 2014. But Libyans are fearful that this battle for the capital could prove the most damaging yet, given the fact uh, the war is now grinding into its ninth month with no end in sight, and also given the existential nature of, of this battle. Some are trying to cast this as a a war between um, militia rule, the militia menace in Libya that has existed since 2011, and uh, the military rule. Uh, Haftar's critics accuse him of trying to impose on Libya. There are others, however, who argue that there is another way here, that Libya's choice for the future Um, should not uh, be that between militias or military rule. And
0: what kind of evidence or talk was there of foreign powers' involvement?
5: Well, Khalifa Haftar has been backed uh, since 2014 by an array of external uh, actors, uh, chief amongst them the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt, um, to a lesser degree France, uh, which has nevertheless... uh, provided some political backing since this war um, started uh, on the other side on the part of the UN backed government it has since after launched this offensive received uh, assistance from Turkey in particular Turkey has been providing some of the drones that have been used to carry out these strikes on Haftar's forces. The UN panel of experts on Libya has done wonderful work uh, over the years in chronicling the violations of the arms embargo that was imposed on Libya in 2011. And it has shown that um, there is no kind of equivalence here in that the UAE and Egypt have violated that arms embargo far more than any other external actor in Libya um, since 2014, and very often blatantly so. Um, in their support for Haftar.
2: Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is here in the studio with me, Mary. Mary, get to a point, don't we, that this sort of warfare cannot conclude without continuing air power. And there are not that many countries, apart from those in the Gulf, that can provide the general with air power.
5: Indeed, and that's why so many Libyans are wondering what the end game is here. Um, when Haftar was uh, saying that he was going to march on Tripoli and he was going to capture Tripoli, he insisted he had support in the capital. He insisted that he would be able to take Tripoli without bloodshed, that the people would come and welcome him. That clearly has not happened. Instead, mm. there was a massive counter-mobilization against him by the armed groups and just not support by the the people in general in in Tripoli, um, there was very much a sentiment amongst the the Libyans I spoke to in Tripoli and, and uh, Misrata of a plague on both your houses. Um, that you know, no love lost for the UN-backed government, uh, which has been seen to have failed um, in in so many areas. But people simply do not want the state that Haftar has made very clear he's seeking to establish in Libya, which would be, um, in some ways, uh, a copy, if you like, of Egypt next door under Sisi, with some shades of uh, of the dispensation under the former Gaddafi regime. So there are many Libyans, and, and I was struck by the fact that it almost divides on generational lines mm. with a lot of young Libyans, and remember, this is a country with uh, two th- where 2,000 population are under the age of 30, who basically don't want to go back to that um, authoritarian uh, state. Now, to, to go back to this question of, of how far the external actors may be prepared to, to push this and their support of Haftar, that has been a question uh, since the beginning of, of his offensive. Mm. Um, no answers to that, but what Libyans are concerned about, and several of them raise this prospect, and that is of a Syria-like uh, scenario emerging.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Michael Evans former defence and pentagon correspondent for the times is is still with us. Uh, Michael um interesting hearing what you hear and also given NATO's involvement in 2011 that it wasn't talked about at the leaders meeting or it didn't seem to be at least
4: I think I think they've crossed Libya off the list. I mean I really think they've shown singular lack of interest in Libya for some years now. Uh, and maybe surprising, not surprising, since they've been so involved, um, America in particular, uh, obviously in the Middle East, uh, in, in Syria, and, in Iraq, etc. But Libya has basically been left. And as a result, uh, the one uh, ingredient that hasn't really been mentioned is Russia. Uh, Russia I- is clearly involved in Libya. Uh, they see uh, a, a, a terrain where they can... Uh, get involved and, and exploit it to their own advantage. And we've, we know from, from reports that we've seen that uh, there are uh, certainly several hundred, up to 600 or so, uh, uh, Russian mercenaries who, who are operating in Libya uh, on, on the side of um, uh, Khalifa. And uh, I, I think that's another worrying ingredient. But they seem to have done it and got away with it without uh, the West or NATO, if you like, uh, seem to, seeming to take any notice. Did
0: you get much wind of that, Murray, when you were there?
5: Well, what was striking, um, because we have seen in, in recent weeks and months um, many statements uh, from uh, Europeans, but also increasingly uh, from Washington, um, warning or cautioning about the increasing presence of Russian mercenaries on the ground um, in Libya. The Russians have had a presence on the ground in Libya for a couple of years now, um, particularly on the side of, of Haftar. Um, politically, Russia has insisted that it, it you know, it engages, with um, all actors um, in the Libya crisis, but with the Russian military seeming to have more of a preference for Haftar. What I was struck by was that the Russians was not the Russians. It wasn't a, a buzz topic of conversation mm. in Tripoli, whether in my conversations with government officials, people in state institutions, and the population in in general. Um, it, there was very much, I think, a sense that um, talk of the increased Russian presence and it is increasing. Some people yeah. would question if it's increasing as much as some of the media reporting or coverage or commentary has has claimed. That basically, this is the way of getting. The attention of the Trump administration, and to try and get it to pay some attention, um, some more attention to Libya to get this ongoing conflict resolved.
0: Interesting thought, Mary Fitzgerald, Michael Evans. Thank you both for your time today. Um, Christopher, we were talking earlier about NATO and whether it had a big idea. In fact, it does have a big idea, doesn't it? It's in Madrid. Well, it should have. Idea.
2: It should have. The more important uh, meeting this week was not NATO, but what was going on in Madrid was the international climate change meeting. There is the substance of what should be NATO's big idea, and that is because of climate change, NATO has to wonder whether it can uh, secure the authority of governments, maybe world governments, that are threatened by the security aspects of climate change. When the people start taking to the streets in their tens of thousands, which you see at the moment, acting against perhaps fires, uh, floods, Famine or whatever, that they know that it's not just a question of the economics, but governments cannot cope with it, and there NATO has to think to themselves: Listen, we will have a part in this. That's the big idea that they've got to think and start to start to show that it's not just a it's not just a thing which uh, one government can say no, we don't agree, or we do agree. It is going to affect almost every government in the world.
0: Now finally today, we have uh, a little fort here, a Royal Navy, a Royal Air Force, but um, why isn't the Army Royal, Christopher?
2: Never has been. Uh, I mean, some of the regiments are royal, and r- the regiments are royal almost as a battle honour. But the Crown, the Royal bit, has never been ha- able to have its one big army. And don't forget, the Army is all sorts of organisations. The Royal Navy isn't, the Royal Air Force isn't, and it's as simple as that.
0: And that's it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and to you for listening. Join the discussion on Twitter, followers at Sitrep. We'll be back again at the same time next week. From me, Kate Shippo, thank you for listening. Bye-bye for now.